discovered 2,600 years ago, a long time ago, 2,600 years ago. So we celebrate him and what he brought into the world that we still, even now, he's still influencing our lives and, and the teaching is still coming through. And you know, we learn what to, to come more deeply into our own understanding. So we celebrate the, the actual living Buddha who was alive all that time ago, but we also celebrate the Buddha within our own heart, our own potential, full potential, for being completely awake and free from suffering. So this is a day to celebrate our highest potential and our and the one who pointed us in that direction. You see he's pointing. <laughs> so I'd like to begin by chanting, um, it's in the ancient language, that so was used in the time of the Buddha in Pali. I'm going to chant, um, it's called the, the Avada, and it's inviting the, all of the forces of goodness to come. So, um, so the invisible beings, the, the devas, which are like the angels, and the good dragons and the, the Gandabras. The Gandabras are rather lovely with birds that live in the realm of sound. So invite them to come. And the Yakas, which are the, the earth spirits. So we invite them all to come today to be part of this ceremony and also to, you know, they can be protective. So we invite them to come and take part and we share with them and then they can stay around our lives and uh, of how in awkward moments. Mm-hmm. 
mostly I lived in Sedona in the Bay Area in my life. And my Buddhist practice began in, in 
and then he'd feel afraid and then he'd, he'd just touch the earth and he'd, okay, but I'm here, the earth is here, my body's here, they can't do anything to me, so everything's okay. And then he'd have thoughts of lovely things, delicious ice cream, mm-hmm. if only he could go and have that lovely ice cream that he saw, polar bear ice cream, <laughs> and, and then no, no, I want to get invited, Temptations and fears and thoughts and doubts and confusions came and, and his mind was pulled here, there, and everywhere. But he decided, no, I just stay. I just stay present until until I can find the place of freedom. And he stayed there, sitting with with all these challenges. And the, as he was sitting, the sun came, started to shine really strong, and he was he had a shaved head like we had. And it's, the sun was so strong on his head that it started to crack in the sun. And he said, I'm not going to move until I'm enlightened. And the story goes that, yeah, just, yeah. that as he sat there, snails came and crawled up his body and rested on his head to keep it moist. And that's why when you see the Buddha, he has these little curls on his head because there are the snails that are protecting him from being burnt in the sun. And then after some time the clouds came and uh, and then dark clouds like you might have seen this morning, dark thunder clouds came and it started to pour with rain and he just kept carrying on sitting there, it wasn't going to move. So sitting there in the pouring rain and then they say a naga came, so a naga is like a, a kind of a serpent, like a kind of a snake came, a huge snake came and coiled seven times around his body and then came up behind him with a hood and, and covered him with, with his hood until the rain stopped and he just carried on sitting there. So sometimes you see images of the Buddha sitting and there's a big snake behind him with a hood and that's uh, called Muchalinda, the snake was called Muchalinda, came to protect him from the rain while he was striving for enlightenment. So while, while he was struggling there, the forces of nature, the creatures around him recognised his good intention they, they helped him out. And eventually, after sitting there for many days, he had a breakthrough and everything opened up. And all of those troubles, all those struggles, all those fears and doubts and confusions and challenges just fell away and his mind was completely open and free and happy. And he felt, wow, this is wonderful and it's so simple. How did I miss this before? How, how did I never get it before? How did I make my life so difficult? It's so simple. And then he thought, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should go and teach other people how to find this this place of freedom, so they don't have to suffer in their lives, so they don't have to struggle and, and suffer. And then he thought, well, if I do that, it'd be a lot of trouble. People won't understand. They'll, they'll always want to, you know. They'll, they'll always be kind of tempted by that pineapple ice cream. They're never going to be. Maybe they won't, won't try. And uh, but then they say that a deva came, like an like angel or something like that, came and whispered in his ear, "Please, out of compassion, teach the Dharma so that those who can hear, those who have, or those who have little, not too much dust in their eyes, you can see." 
clearly that they can hear the Dharma. So please, please have a compassion for future generations. Teach the Dharma. So he said, okay, since you asked, I will do that. So he went off and he went walking and he met um, these five men he'd been living with in the forest before he was enlightened. And when he lived with these five men, they were ascetics. So ascetics are people who decide to give up everything comfortable. <laughs> everything comfortable and live a really, really tough life because they think that if they live a really tough life, then they'll get enlightened. So he lived with them for, for quite a few years until he was so, so ill from this difficult life that he realised this is not a good thing to be doing. And he left them. And they carried on with what they're doing, believing this is the way, this is the way help. If I just make life really tough, then you'll get enlightened. So he, he went back, after he was enlightened, he went back to find them. And, he, and when they saw him coming, they thought, no, oh, that's him, you know, he's kind of given up <laughs> the real way. They're not going to bother talking to him. But as he came close to them, they just couldn't help but stand up and greet him because he was so beautiful, so radiant, so free and happy that they couldn't help but greet him and make a seed and welcome him, give him some tea because they just saw that there's something very special that happened to this man. So he taught, began to teach the, the Dharma the way to find complete freedom from any kind of unhappiness, even little, even little unhappiness. He was to, began to teach the way to have freedom from any kind of troubles. And as these five men listened, just one of them understood. Four of them didn't really get it, but one of them got it. Kondanya, they say Kondanya, Anya Kondanya, Kondanya heard the teaching. And that was the beginning of, of setting in motion what we call the wheel of Dharma. So from that day on, and that was said to be 2,600 years ago, from that day on the teaching has carried on, and it carries on through us and through Mary and through everyone who practices the Buddhist teaching. So as he, as he lived uh, and, and travelled around, he used to walk barefoot around India, and he wore robes a bit like ours, shaved head, very slightly, and he would walk around India barefoot, as people do, did in those days, and uh, more and more people came to see him, because he was very, very inspiring, radiant and beautiful, and a very kind, compassionate and wise man. So, in the end, thousands of people would come to see him. He became very popular. And uh, more and more people became monks and nuns because they liked to follow him. And then also many people who saw him in the family life, they also followed his teaching, but not, they didn't have to become monks and nuns. Some people do that, some people do yeah, this different ways for different people. And, but many, many people were inspired by him and followed his way. And as uh, as this was going on, one of his one of the monks was actually his cousin, Devadatta, he was called. So many many monks, and his cousin was very jealous of the Buddha, and he thought he's got all of those people who like him, and I want to have those people liking me. <laughs> so he started to plot how he could get rid of his cousin, the Buddha. And he tried quite a number of different ways to, to, to uh, 
<laughs> and one of them, one of the ways he tried this was to, to get a, a big elephant, a wild elephant, and to get it drunk on, on fermented fruit. And then to irritate this elephant, the elephant was called Nalagiri, and then to provoke the elephant, and then he, so he did this as this drunk, mad elephant in the forest. And the Buddha was walking in the forest and he heard this kind of boom, 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 boom. Oh, what's that? And then he looked and he saw there was this elephant running towards him that was a really enraged, furious elephant. Can you imagine having a big, wild, drunk elephant running towards him? It's scary, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Buddha is not trying. Most of us would just run, you know, somewhere. Um, but the Buddha, he didn't run. He stood there and he, he looked at that elephant and he, he recognised that elephant's drunk and it's angry. But underneath, He's got a really good heart. So he stood there and he started to radiate love to this elephant. And the elephant was running, furious, and I think he's going to trample that mark to pieces. And, and then the, the Buddha just stood there and he, he just radiated love, radiated love, because he knew that underneath the elephant was a good being, just like all of us are underneath. And so even if the elephant got really close and the Buddha just stood there, Radiating waves of love. And as the elephant came close to the Buddha and started to feel those waves of love, then he started to slow down. And then he slowed down more and more and he thought, who is this amazing person? And as he came really close to the Buddha, they say he bowed down and he put his on the ground. <laughs> and he bowed to the Buddha because he felt the, the love of the Buddha and that the Buddha was pointing to the, the goodness within his own heart. So that's just one little story about the Buddha and how and how he lived and how he touched people in the in the world. And there are many more stories too. So one of the the um, ways that the Buddha you know, he wasn't born perfect, like all of us are. So, even though he ended up in, later in his life, he became this wonderful man. It didn't just kind of, it didn't just start off like that. He started off with a good potential, but he had to work at it. You know, he had to develop good qualities in his heart. So he had to, even though sometimes he'd feel really irritated, instead of following that irritation, he would say, "Okay, I'll just get over there and do something good instead of doing something mean." So he would work at developing good qualities in the heart. And sometimes it was really hard to do, especially if you got someone like your cousin trying to do away with you, you know, it's not <laughs> But he would, you know, keep on working on developing his heart in a good way. So as he kept on cultivating his heart, then he became more and more powerful. His heart became more and more powerful. His love became more and more powerful. And so he was able to break through the confusions and uh, fears and troubles of his mind. So, and one of the ways he did that was through meditation. So, through practice, meditating while he was sitting, and meditating while he was walking, meditating while he went to the bathroom. Everything was a meditation. Meditation while eating. Everything was a meditation. So, what does meditation mean? means being fully with what you're doing. 
being completely here, completely with it, with what you're doing. So I thought maybe now we could do a little bit of walking meditation. And uh, so you might have heard the word mindfulness, being mindful. So when we walk, sometimes we can walk and be completely mindless. Minds are here, and then So what we do in, in walking meditation is we, we become mindful of our body walking, mindful of our feet on the floor, mindful, and we can do some movements. I thought we could do some movements while we're walking, not just walking, and be mindful of the feeling of the movements while we walk. So we're being mindful of our bodies as they're moving around. And uh, what we can do is we can stand in a line, so I'll, I'll be in the front. Maybe, would you be in the back so you can watch it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and as we walk, so you just walk the same pace as me, we'd be just one after the other. Or if you want to stand next to your hand, it's also kind of connect together. And so once, if, if I lift my arm, then you lift your arm. Or you lift, the person behind me lifts her arm and the person behind me lifts his arm. So you can make like a, a bit like a, a centipede walking. Like that. So we thought we could experiment with that and see how that works. Okay. Are we going to be indoors or outdoors? We're going to be indoors.
And notice if your belly feels tight or feels relaxed. You can let your tummy just feel like settling. Let your hand on your belly feel like it's settling. Be with the breath, feel breathing in and breathing out. See if you can be with each breath, breathing in, breathing out. And you can close your eyes so you can feel or easier the breath. As you breathe in, you can say, just quietly to yourself, breathing in, may I be peaceful. Breathing out, may my family be peaceful. Peaceful. Breathing out, may all the people in the world be peaceful.
maybe not saying those things. <laughs> <laughs> Quite good point. Yeah. Good. I think speech is, is for everybody the most difficult one, or one of the most difficult things to work with. So quick, isn't it, from here to here? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And 
seems like you're kind of walking on a tightrope when you're trying to do that because you always find yourself always falling off into maybe anger or negativity or something like that. So if you, I remind myself of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and Sangha all the time, and sort of see almost everything I encounter as the Sangha. But I see my own actions and speech as the Dhamma. And the Buddha, I'm not quite there yet. I mean, I see him with that idea of wisdom, but I can't say that mm. I have that. So I'm working on the Dhamma. Well, you could say the Buddha is the one who knows what's going on, mm. what, like what you're saying, to be, to be able to, to be aware of what's going on. So obviously, you're doing that in your speech. You know, you're being mindful of your speech. If you're walking on that line, it takes mindfulness to stay on that tightrope. <laughs> so then that's the, the mindfulness of the Buddha. So. Myself is um, particularly recently, it's been very strong that the 
message of impermanence. So it's going through a lot of changes, life changes, and people coming and going, and people have known for a long time as nuns have left, and they're now on different lives, and, and uh, moving from the country I lived in most of my life to here, and things like lots of, lots of changes. And meeting new people, making connections, losing connections, all that. And just to try and stay as the, as the, as not that I was managing, but trying to stay at a place of centeredness in the midst of all of that. So watching that, watching all those situations coming and going, and feeling them, allowing myself to feel what's happening, not being, not being aloof, not being kind of like, oh, you know, then I go there. But just allowing it all to come through and be felt and let go of and just keep moving. You know, see it, see it in one hand, let it go in the other hand, and just to keep doing that. Because that's uh, it's more and more clear really, that that's that life is this and it is happening now. And it is this constantly changing experience with with uh, you know coming together connections and and partings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's constantly happening that way. So I think the teaching of impermanence is most strong for me at this time. And to try and be centered with it rather than feel sorry about it or wish it was otherwise or try and hold on to something. But just this is how life is. It's, it's changing, it's changing, it's changing. And some of the things that come are great and better than I could ever imagine, but some are painful. Saying that, it reminded me that when I was teaching in the, in the city, you know, because the Buddha was married and had a, a son. And uh, when his son was seven, so he actually left his family when, they were, when his, his, his son was a little baby, left his wife and child, and he went off on his search. And then once he became, after he became enlightened, then he went back and he talked to his wife, and, and his son actually became a monk. And he's called Rahula, and at the age of seven. He was the first and last to be ordained as a monk when he was a little boy because his mother was so upset to lose him that, uh, you know, when he was so small that, that she just kept on pleading to the Buddha, please, you know, don't take him away. He's still a little boy. And, and, uh, but uh, the Buddha taught him, they took care of him and taught him the, the Dhamma. And he, he taught this one, 
it's quite profound teaching that one of the, one of the teachers he gave to his son Mahuna was uh, in the scene, in what is seen, when you look at something, in what is seen, there's just that. So in the scene, there is only the scene. In the heard, there is only the heard. In what is um, cognized and known, there is only what is known. So he's pointing to how we see something, and then we go, oh look, that's that, and oh, and we add a whole story on top of it. You know? Well, that reminds me of when I used to be, oh. you know, and then we add all of these stories, and he's saying, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the head and the head. So it's very immediate. And it's pointed out places before we start adding on all of the extra perceptions and stories and possibilities of just that. And his son, Rahula, he became fully enlightened at the age of seven. Don't know if you know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had a very good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, um, uh, Yashodra, the Buddha's wife, the mother of Rahula, she also later became a nun and she also became a So often, Sometimes we hear about the fact that the Buddha left his wife and child, but you don't always hear what well, actually then he came back and he gave him the greatest gift you can give him. Um, I have heard that uh, how we should view things is pleasant or unpleasant. And um, or neutral. That's what we're. That's what's been taught here in this room. Mm-hmm. And what comes to mind for me is pleasant and unpleasant. Already have connotative values, um, and that there must be better words to neutralize um, what's going on. So mm-hmm. my question to you is. Why don't we have words like comfortable and uncomfortable, which has, to me, less of a connotative value than pleasant or unpleasant? I would say pleasure isn't always comfortable. Pleasure can be very intense. It's we have different pleasures. <laughs> but I mean, as, a, as an experience, it isn't always a comfortable experience. It can be quite an intense experience. And. Um, I mean, the thing is that the, the, the Buddhist, you know, he, he, he taught in the teachings have come down in Pali, then they've been translated. So the, the Pali Sukha and Dukkha, I mean, Sukha, I actually don't know the etymology, I, do, I did it one time, but I haven't got it, but, um, you know, Dukkha actually means, means, um, like, unsatisfactory. You know, it isn't, isn't really doing it for us. And sukha means kind of satisfactory, like nice. Mm. Yeah. And uh, because it's, we're using language, then we, we kind of, in a way, sometimes we kind of limit the experience into the, the language that we've got, and that's what language does. It helps to, helps to frame things, but it also limits things. So, and the Buddha actually wasn't saying experience everything as, as dukkha and sukha. And he was saying feeling, specifically about feeling. So you know, when a, when a pleasant feeling arises, you know this is a pleasant feeling. When a painful feeling arises, or an unpleasant or uncomfortable feeling arises, you know this is an unpleasant feeling. And when there's no, neither pleasant or unpleasant, then you know this is neither unpleasant or unpleasant. So it wasn't saying it necessarily about feelings, but about our feeling that arises in relationship to what we experience. And the, and the point of that is, is just to simplify, because we tend to think, 
I really like that. I want more of that. And then you go towards that. Or I really, I don't want to do anything like that. Living in a room where I 
that's something you used to have to lose. Wow, okay. <laughs> so like you know, it's come back in for something, and you, you know, maybe you can't go out again so easily, but you know that there's a much bigger perspective. So it's a very precious experience, and it's, it's something that is, it belongs to all of us.
and over to the Anagaki Maria. So if you should just put your, you can put your hands together on your, at your heart, where it helps to centre your attention. And just take in. So this is a, this is our giving, this is our gift to you from us. And it's not actually from us either, because we're using this ancient chant. So as we chant, we're, we're nuns, and as we chant, it's like we're carrying, we're, we're like channels really for the teaching that's gone through over the many you know, hundreds of thousands of years and of the blessings that have been you know, coming through over 2,600 years. So we're, it's not like Sister Anna Bowie and Anna Yakumari get blessing you, but it's, a, it's like we open up a channel and we wish that your lives be f- fulfilled. And uh, so we chant the, we're wishing that you've, having known these, you know, suffering and fear and anger that you may be free from those and also that you may be victorious in your good aspirations. <laughs> or maybe it's for the goodness. And that all the forces of, of goodness that protect you. And uh, we, as, as part of the blessing at the end, I'm going to do a little water blessing. Since it didn't rain today outside, it didn't rain inside. And that's that's part of the, the blessing. So we, we use this water to bless the Buddha, and now we bless the, the Buddha within each of us. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.